Welcome to the Sustain UW podcast, a place for sustainability conversation, expert interviews, and news hosted by student interns from the UW-Madison Office of Sustainability. We want to know, what's up with sustainability and where should we go from here? Before we dive into today's episode, we want to remind you that the opinions expressed on this show do not reflect the views of the Office of Sustainability, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, or its Board of Regents. Now, let's get into today's show. Hello, everyone. I am Britta Wellenstein, your host for today's episode on a kind of hot button issue for both Wisconsin and our nation's waterways, and that is this compound called PFAS. And I am joined today by Onar Apool, who is an assistant professor and water researcher from the University of Maine. Onar, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what what brings you to Madison today? Thank you, Britta. I'm here invited uh, by the Sustainability Center at University of Wisconsin medicine to give a talk about PFAS issues and introduce my research at the Western Lecture Series. Yeah, and that Western Lecture Series is put on by the SAGE group on campus, and your talk is called Water Treatment in the Anthropocene Epic. So you're obviously coming to discuss this chemical PFAS. It's gotten a lot of attention this past spring. I I was seeing a bunch of news articles about it when the EPA proposed new enforceable limits nationwide. But before we can really understand (laughs) what these uh, new establishments are, we have to understand what PFAS is. So Onar, what, what is this chemical? PFAS is a short name for per and polyfluoroalkyl substances. It is an umbrella term for about 4,000 chemicals. There's just not one, but there's um, hundreds of them. And the abbreviation covers different chemical structures, just per and poly, and it's a plural abbreviation. And in short, people have been using forever chemicals. I mean, obviously, it's a non-technical term because of their um, indestructible properties by um, conventional methods. And I, I'm a little of a chemistry uh, nerd, but this forever aspect and that indestructible part comes from that polyfluoroalkyl, and it's from that fluoro, which is the fluorine, and then alkyl, which is carbon bond. So this carbon-fluorine bond is the hard thing to kind of get rid of. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. The carbon-fluoride bond is the strongest covalent bond that carbon makes. And if carbon makes a bond, typically we call it an organic compound. So this is the strongest organic chemical that we are dealing with. So the problem child is the carbon fluoride bond. Okay. So these these forever chemicals, they're currently like contaminating our, our waterways, but why are we concerned about that? What makes them dangerous? They have associated health impacts. Some of them are unfolding. Some of them are already proven. They are not good for our health. Particularly, they cause kidney disease, um, immune response suppression. For example, if you have a flu shot and if you have high PFAS in your blood levels, uh, uh, bloodstream, then you may have less antibodies. It causes testicular cancer and it has uh, severe implications in um, pregnant uh, women or um, immunely compromised population. So cascading long-term effects are still unfolding. These are just the ones we are aware of. So we have these concerns to deal about, but how did PFAS get into our water and get into our bloodstream in the first place? Right, PFAS was accidentally discovered in 1930s 
they were trying to figure out a new chlorofluorocarbon to use as a refrigerant, but they created this very powerful, virtually indestructible chemical. In 1950s, it became commercially uh, used, even high-profile projects like Manhattan Project that PFAS uses because of its thermal durability. Uh, it's basically um, a good detergent, good surfactant. And then, as progressively we found out that it's a good stain-resistant um, coating, good oil-resisting coating, it's a good fire suppressant, um, it has a lot of um, benefits to give economic prosperity. So the chemical became popular, commercially popular. Um, you name it, food packaging, floss, carpets, fabrics, outdoorsy gears. Like the, the water-resistant yeah, ones. Water-resistant ones. So the, um, the chemical become abundantly used for a lot of uh, good reasons. That's the commercial part. Also... There are industrial applications, you know, producing mass scale and then ending up having wastewater or sludge with PFAS loading, domestic wastewater, um, the, again, the sludge that has uh, incoming PFAS accumulates in the sludge and then what you do with it, landfill leachate. So the, um, the complex environmental ecosystem and engineered ecosystem basically used, created a constant influx of PFAS into the environment. So the roots are just like any other good thing we like using. And then but what do you do when you're done using it? Mm -hmm. Almost like a bad idea in a science fiction movie. Would you like to create an indestructible robot? So what do you do with it when you're done using yeah. it? So the, um, uh, the environmental abundance is unquestionable now. Every water source you look at has PFAS, even the snow melt in Mount Everest has PFAS. Uh -huh. uh, in the um, uh, not industrialized regions, industrialized regions, you can still find PFAS because of its um, transportation widely. Mm -hmm. And I want to go back to that Everest in the snow, and that would be obviously didn't start there. So that would be from the clouds of that, like taking water that was already contaminated and then snowing onto Everest. So this kind of creates, possibly, possibly. even even if a certain area doesn't necessarily have contamination, even though you said most yeah. of it does, yeah. it, it can still be impacted. Is that right? Possibly, or the outdoorsy gears, the hike. Could yeah, be, um, could be anything. The pathways are complicated, and decoding them is not an easy task. But um. As far as we know, there's a lot of outdoorsy gears out there um, that may be one path. Just to kind of showcase what, what the impact is in Madison, now you're from Maine, so mm -hmm. not, not, not versed in Madison, but I run by Monona Terrace, which is this beautiful part of Madison, and there are always people fishing, but there's so many fish advisory signs, and that's from PFAS levels, so they don't want people to fish in Lake Monona, as well as some of the other four lake regions, and there's other areas in Wisconsin as well. I'll, I'll highlight a few of your listeners. There's a fish advisory in Bayfield County in the um, kind of northern area of Superior inside the Door County Peninsula and then along portions of the Wisconsin River in Wausau, Stevens Point, Wisconsin Rapids, and then from the Mississippi River from Monona up to St. Paul are all these fish advisories. And then you can also see contamination in wells and other bodies of water, uh, particularly well five by the airport in Madison is of concern. And Madison, Dane County water officials have been working to limit the PFAS in that area. But Obviously, this is a very a very widespread issue, and we're trying to get the water 
out. And your research highlights a lot of ways um, that we can try to get this chemical out of the water. So uh, what are some solutions to this problem? I do not know the landscape in Wisconsin, but that sounds about right. A long list of polluted groundwater and surface water bodies. The compound is conserved as it travels between um, engineered or natural water bodies from a water treatment plant to a consumer, then a wastewater treatment plant to a lake. So you can imagine this compound sticking in water and moving around or sticking to sludge, again moving around between landfill and then leachate and then sludge again. So basically it creates a lot of circulation in the environment. So it doesn't really stay one in one place, it moves around. My perspective in this issue is let's understand the big life cycle of PFAS and where it may be naturally accumulating. If there is a high concentration of PFAS in just making this up in a landfill leachate or a sludge that's a byproduct of an industry, let's focus our energy on making sure that it doesn't go back into the environment until we figure out an effective and engineerable way of destroying them. Because at nanogram levels in a lake and pumping all that groundwater or lake water to remove PFAS at environmental levels is virtually impossible. Mm It's really expensive and inefficient. But we have to minimize the contact of PFAS with people, right? So we have to find the pathways, how it enters, um, and the interface between people and the environment and intervene when it's most efficient, where we have the highest levels of PFAS that's either contained or destroyed, and make sure that we do not let people ingest or uptake PFAS in their daily lives. And I want to go back to what you said about it would be difficult to remove it from a body of water uh, at that scale yet, because when we talk about PFAS, we're talking about parts per trillion uh, is, is... of concern, um, I believe the new EPA standard is like four parts per trillion, and that that's so incredibly small <laughs> when we think about removing it. Uh, usually, pollutants are in parts per million or parts per billion, but parts per trillion is is an, another st- scale of uh, concern and su- such a little amount for a- any sort of body of water. And then you said you're you're looking at the life cycle and you're looking at like a specific source, something like like a leachate. And I've seen that your research kind of looks into using like nanoparticles or something to take up the the PFAS? So could you explain your research? Sure. Keeping that logic in mind, I realized that water filters that we use are effic- effective enough to trap PFAS. And yes, you are right about incredibly low levels are still concerning. So the water filters, ma- namely granular activated carbon, which is a filter material that is benchmark for water treatment plants or domestic filters. So this compound basically sticks to the filter, but what do you do with the filter? So my research starts at the point where we could thermally regenerate and reactivate these filters. And we made a uh, discovery that at regeneration temperatures, PFAS is also being destroyed. So that could be an intervention where you have an exhausted filter. You want to recover that filter 
or reuse. Mm -hmm. And then in the meantime, you are destroying PFAS. So my research systematically looks at different types of water filters, different types of PFAS, and different types of regeneration conditions and see when we are destroying PFAS and if we are destroying PFAS, at the same time recovering that valuable filter for reuse. Mm -hmm. Thermal regeneration is an industrial um, application. It's already out there. There are thermal regeneration facilities, you know, these big factory-sized ovens that... Um, um, that uh, heat up the carbon and then sell it as recovered carbon. So it's already, the infrastructure is already there. So let's okay. utilize it and and end that forever circulation of PFAS in the environment. You're talking about, because if we, we have these carbon filters that can, um, are they used on a like water treatment level? Is that where we would see those? Absolutely. Carbon okay. filters that we use for municipal water treatment or domestic water treatment. Right, so those are able to capture the PFAS in that scenario, but and then you're right, yeah, if we, we use it up, that, that doesn't mean the PFAS is gone. It's out of our waterways, but it's still existing. So with what you found, we'd be able to theoretically destroy that PFAS entirely and not have a more circular system. Hopefully. Okay. Are you, are you positive that uh, municipalities will be able to utilize on this technology soon, or is it a farther out timeline? So most of these decisions are made based on policymakers' Uh, regulations. Um, a treatment plant is going to start implementing these filters to remove PFAS as soon as it's regulated. Okay. At yes, incredibly low levels. If we are successfully removing PFAS with a filter, just a side note: we may be removing other pollutants too, so it doesn't hurt. It's a a good step towards public health, and. If it is regulated, there is no um, a facility that is going to be able to remove PFAS without doing something additional if they have high levels in their source water. So they have to do an intervention to meet the new legal requirements. Mm -hmm. So that's promising. And then um, looking at what happens to the spent filters, spent membranes, spent materials that they use, or the sludge, so basically whatever process they implement to remove the PFAS, that is going to be a secondary challenge to make sure uh, we handle that byproduct that's PFAS loaded um, doesn't become a side waste stream mm -hmm. and a source of pollution so that we have to handle that properly. Yeah, we have to handle that as well. Uh, I want to go back to what you said about regulations because the EPA did propose new regulations. So uh, could you explain that new proposed ruling? So it changes every day. <laughs> so don't caught me if I'm not caught up with it. But currently there is a drinking water standard notification for six PFAS combined or either at 70 parts per trillion. And they named six PFAS that are... Um, commonly detected in source waters. And there is a lifetime consumption advisory that the number that you pronounced for PPT sounds right, which means that if you have lifetime exposure to drinking water at those levels, that it may have an, a noticeable health impact on a person. So those are notifications and states are following these notifications and um, positioning themselves to um, embrace this new regulation to explain the magnitude of this. If 
we start regulating PFAS at nanogram levels. Mm -hmm. We are changing the entire environmental economy around it. But now we have to find different raw water sources. We have to implement new technologies. We have to get the PFAS out of your water stream. We have to test the waters, which is also at those low levels expensive and challenging. Yeah. So it means that there is a new whole new water economy, which is um, very transformative, uh, in my opinion. Transformative, as in like it will change how we are approaching our water systems now. Absolutely. So I, I think of a state like Wisconsin, um, which from what I, I've looked at for Wisconsin, we have a bit of a less stringent ruling um, as a state on PFAS. So with new regulations that are going to be more stringent and more strict, what what does kind of a state like ours face in terms of dealing with our waterways? Is this going to be, I mean, I'm assuming it'll be expensive, but like what, what should we expect? Sure. Yeah, things are expensive. We have expensive things. <laughs> yeah. They provide um, a value to us. That's why we spend it money. So I don't really know. I think Wisconsin follows EPA's 70 PPT regulation, which is um, mm-hmm. which a lot of states do. Again, the the core value underneath making a regulation as such is to protect public health. If the implications of that regulation is worse than the benefits, of course, there has to be um, further debate. But I really don't know the um, economic um, ecosystem here in Wisconsin. Then what you've talked about with getting rid of PFAS is at a drinking water level, correct? If we're at like these municipalities. And then I'm thinking about uh, how we also are exposed from it through food, like like fish. Because if fish are in the water, they're drinking that water. And if it's a PFAS contaminated water, then that's a whole cycle to us. Um, But if these solutions are kind of at a drinking water level, what can we do for our lakes that have these kind of fish advisories? Can we somehow reverse it yet or just try to limit the exposure? Yeah, it's a really good question. Roughly 20% of a person's uh, PFAS exposure is ingesting water with PFAS. That means there is 80% of other pathways, including skin absorption, inhalation, eating food, eating food that is in uh, contact with PFAS uh, laden containers. So in general, again, being mindful about the, um, the commercial products, being mindful about consuming fish coming from pollute sources is the general guidelines to avoid ingestion. But it is extremely challenging as an individual to be aware of where PFAS may be. Mm. And it's also extremely difficult to get rid of it if you have it. Um, in, in the system, in your food system, in your um, commercial products. So it's just part of this podcast or any other outreach efforts that we are doing is to raise awareness so that mm-hmm. people start looking into it and thinking about their um, PFAS exposure. At this point, we people believe that um, roughly 100 million Americans are exposed to PFAS through drinking water. And uh, again, roughly 100% of uh, Americans have PFAS in their bloodstream. So it is um, a widespread is an, probably an underestimation, but um, a very um, difficult, complicated technical challenge and a communication challenge we have in hand. 
And I will say for Wisconsinites that want to see PFAS information, the DNR has a very good uh, interactive map to kind of show contaminated waterways and wells and a lot more information on the specifics in Wisconsin. But something that I've been thinking about with PFAS, you said that this chemical was accidentally discovered in the 30s, uh, which I always think is funny when a chemical is accidentally discovered. But we've still been using it. Did they think it was of concern then when they started putting it into products or did they not even test that? I think the chemical regulations back then were not even in place. The, there was not <laughs> a legal framework around chemicals okay. and their uses back then. So it first the um, the technology first hits the market and then the implications are discovered. Just um, not related to PFAS, but the 20 years data for nanotechnology is we spend about um, $9 for technology development and about $1 per understanding the toxicity or the implications of that technology. So obviously it creates a mis- um, imbalance that we yeah. always create new technologies and, and then catching up with the implications way, way later than mm-hmm. um, these technologies. So PFAS is not an exception. We benefited from it. Okay, it was economic prosperity. Um, yeah, nonstick pens are very handy. Or, <laughs> they they are. Yeah, and um, a fabric that is coated with a stain repellent, water repellent, is very um, useful. But uh, it has a price, and we are paying the price now. Mm-hmm. When did we first notice that PFAS was an issue? That it was something we should start to regulate? I think 80s is um, the, the public awareness caused domestic production to start declining. I don't know exactly when, but domestic production has stopped. Uh, so we are starting to get uh, PFAS from import products and whatever we have in hand already. Um, so in, I think about um, 40 years or so is when we are start worrying about it. And you said PFAS production has stopped, and at least in the U.S.? Domestic PFAS production. Okay, but... I'm just thinking of all the the water repellent products that I see every day and the uh, nonstick pan I just got for my apartment. Though these products are still being made, are, are can they be replaced with a better substance? Or yeah, this is a really good question, Rita. Yes, if we are going to eliminate PFAS from our lives, it means that we are eliminating the benefit that they bring in. So we have to find safer alternatives okay. for these um, chemicals and their uses. Safer, meaning less toxic to humans, less toxic to the environment. And this safer alternative development and finding better alternatives can also be tricky because maybe driven by policy. So, Mm -hmm. okay, this is not PFAS, this is something else. And GenX is a good example. GenX was an alternative compound that has replace PFAS that is um, technically um, an alternative compound, but the implications were not necessarily um, different. Okay, so it replaced PFAS, but it didn't necessarily mean that it still wasn't contaminating the environment. Or Exactly. So the um, alternatives and finding alternative chemicals that can perform as good and in terms of economic performance and in terms of um, material performance is an also important undertaking Mm -hmm. yeah i think about like that cycle you said where we have new technology and we don't really see the the impacts of it negative or positive till till later on 
And to me, that just is this sustainability question of are the systems we currently have created so kind of immediate and market focused? Because I'm assuming when these products came out, people loved it. I, I don't want to dig dig up my, my egg that's stuck to my pan. Like um, these are things that do change our lives, but we have to look to the future. So what what can technology and like industries do now? Is there a way they can, I don't know, it just seems like this uh, hard issue to, to limit. And even if we replace these chemicals, like you said, they might keep going. So I don't know, how how do we stop this kind of negative loop? It sure is complicated. It sure is complicated, not only technically, but also um, communication-wise. Yeah. So what we should do is, what I should keep researching water filters, and you should keep doing podcasts about <laughs> the, um, the economic system that allows the um, uh, new technologies is not going to change companies from thriving forward because that's their mission. Mm-hmm. So there has to be a a healthy balance between checking these new products and um, making sure companies still are successful. So it's a very loaded question. And yeah. It is um, very philo- philosophical. So I'll stop here with that and just acknowledge that it's a very complex co- problem that we, um, mm-hmm. we are facing. But I think the message is clear that it's possible to responsibly advance. So keeping in mind that uh, the the resources on the planet is in our use, so we have to responsibly harvest, use them, and then people's activities. So is the talk this afternoon is Anthropocene epoch and water treatment. So mm-hmm. now people are changing the planet. So we have to responsibly change the planet in a sustainable way. Then I I really like that as an ending point. But I have one more question. Hannah, what do you say to the average listener now who might be concerned about PFAS in their water? Are there individual actions they can take aside from just not uh, consuming PFAS products? Should they be concerned about getting filters for their own water or uh, what can they do? Yeah, they should be aware of it for sure. Wisconsin relies on private wells um, more, more than American average. There's more rural communities. So if the groundwater is polluted then people consuming that water may be subject to it. Not a bad idea to test your waters. The state may uh, provide resources for testing. Not a bad idea to just check out the local authorities' websites, the town, or pick up the phone and call and learn about, you know, how these resources. If they are made available, let's say... um, not a bad idea to test your water. If they are not available, still not a bad idea to devote your own resources to take a look at it, at least if your tap water is safe to consume. And a lot of times we put in water filters and we may just forget to replace the cartridges or do the maintenance mm-hmm. on them. So it's also important that these to remember that these filters have a lifetime. So they yeah. get exhausted. And whatever the producers recommend could be important to keep in mind um, in terms of making sure you don't ingest PFAS. Yeah. That being said, I should probably change my Brita filter. <laughs> I haven't done that in a while. Oh, thank you, Onar, so much. Do you have any, any other final words uh, you'd like to add? No, but I'd like to thank you for having me, Brita. It was a great pleasure. Okay, yeah, thank you. It was a pleasure as well. 
thanks to the Director of Sustainability at UW-Madison, Dr. Missy Nergard, and to the Director of Sustainability Education and Research, Professor Andrea Hicks. Thanks also to the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies and to Facilities Planning and Management for supporting this podcast. The making of these episodes requires a lot of behind-the-scenes work from the entire intern podcast team, and we are so grateful for their efforts. Until next time, continue thinking about how to best sustain UW.